Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And that is so true, isn't it? The only way we're going to make it is by the grace of God. Thank you all for singing for us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles tonight, please, if you will, and open them to the New Testament, to the second book of Timothy. Timothy, 2 Timothy, we're in chapter 3, if you have an old Schofield Bible, that's page number 1280, I'll begin reading in the chapter here, and I want to read down to uh, just through verse number 5, and I'll ask you to leave your Bibles open and just follow me along here uh, for just a few minutes, 2 Timothy chapter number 3, again, I remind you of our service Sunday morning at 10 o'clock here at church. Again, we're just asking you to stay in your car and just come and let's enjoy. Even if it's raining, hey, keep your car running. Keep the windshield wipers going, whatever you need to do. If you want to say amen, honk your horn. Amen. Honk if you love Jesus. That's what they say. And uh, so uh, uh, you can just come and we'll honk and have a good time, all right, at 10 o'clock on uh, Sunday morning. I'm excited about us just all being back together again here on the church campus. All right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse number 1, and this is what the Word of God says. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Well, if you'll leave your Bibles open, you say, Preacher, what in the world does all that have to do with us? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'd like the opportunity tonight for just a few minutes uh, to tell you what all of this has got to do with us. Let's pray. Father, please bless your word. Thank you for good music and singing and just letting us be here and fellowshipping with our people and, and the Lord just uh, having an avenue whereby we can do that. Thank you for this opportunity. I pray anybody that may be listening by radio or by live stream tonight uh, that's not saved, I pray the Spirit of God would make them aware of that. And then I want to ask you to help those of us that are saved, that we'll live in such a way that we'll glorify and honor the Lord Jesus. Please help us tonight. Touch your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for quite a while in our Wednesday night services, we've been making our way through the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. I've been calling this entire series of sermons from this book a manual for maturity. A manual for maturity. Paul, as we have noted, is writing his final letter, his final words to his young protege, a young man by the name of, of Timothy. Keep in mind as we read through this book and read these words, what we're is that we're reading the mail of the Apostle Paul. This is a very personal, a very intimate letter between two people whose love for each other and their love most of all for Jesus runs very deeply. Paul, on a previous occasion, has actually led young Timothy to the Lord. On a previous visit, his second missionary journey, he went into the area of Galatia, and there's a town in Galatia by the name of Derby. And it was there that Paul priest and a young man responded to the gospel invitation by the name of Timothy and got gloriously saved 
by the grace of God. Sometime later, when Paul was back in that same area again, he found that the church of Derby was abuzz uh, about this young convert, this young disciple named Timothy. So Paul takes Timothy under his wings and makes him an associate in the ministry. Can I stop at long enough to say don't ever discount the conversion of little children? You know, one of the things that we have here at our church, the privilege that we have uh, to see here week after week or prior to all this, happening is uh, we, we have the opportunity to see little children constantly uh, receiving Jesus Christ. In fact, most of the people that we baptize around here are young children who ride our church buses in, hear the gospel, and get saved by the grace of God. You know, a lot of people may yawn at that, but don't ever discount the conversion of young children for this reason. I can see maybe somebody go home after church that day and maybe somebody say, hey, how'd it go today? How'd Paul preach? Oh, he preached good. Well, what happened? Well, not much. A young boy walked down the aisle by the name of Timothy and, and got saved. Oh, but brother, God had a plan for this young man's life. This young man was going to go on to pastor the church of Ephesus, one of the great churches in the New Testament. He was going to go on later to become an evangelist in the area of Ephesus, and he would eventually give his life for the cause of Christ. That's right, young Timothy, according to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, was actually beat to death by an angry mob with a bunch of clubs, a bunch of sticks. He gave his life for preaching the gospel. Don't ever discount the conversion of little children. Boy, God has great plans for little children. That's right. I know we get excited when somebody 80 years old walks down the aisle, and we should because that is a miracle, but it is just a great miracle of the grace of God when a young child receives the Lord Jesus. And uh, this is true. If an older gentleman or lady gets saved, their soul has been saved, but their life's gone. But, buddy, when a young person gets saved, not only has their soul been saved, but if they'll live for God, an entire life has been saved. They'll not have to face some of the scars and have some of the memories of people who live out those younger days and, and to sow their wild oats and they have all these memories and, and these, uh, uh, these things in their mind and the scars on their body and the sicknesses that come along with sowing wild oats. I've, I've had somebody tell them before, well, I know my boy's not living right, right now, but I'd rather for him to sow his wild oats while he's young. Are you kidding me? Hey, thank God for boys and girls that don't have to sow their wild oats. Amen. Uh, they're not goody-two-shoes, but thank God for young people who make good choices for their life and grow up and honor God and live for God all the days of their life. Well, I don't know why I said all that, but I'll just say amen myself right there. Well, in, in this text tonight, we find that Paul is writing to young Timothy. And really, as we come to chapter number 3, he's encouraging young Timothy, challenging him to be steadfast in his faith to be moving forward in his faith. I think we come to understand from some of the things that Paul says about him back in the first book of Timothy and also in chapter 1, we find that Timothy struggled with uh, fear and timidity when it comes to, uh, uh, to the gospel, to, to preaching the Word of God. And by the way, one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is in the area of sharing the gospel with people. 
Why, there's probably six or eight of us in this room tonight, but I promise you, of those that are gathered here, probably most of us would say, you know, one of the greatest problems we have in our Christian life is trying to share the gospel with people that we come in contact with. We can talk to them about ball games, we can talk to them about TV shows, and we can talk to them about the coronavirus, we can talk about all that. But boy, I'm telling you, we get a little bit locked, y'all, when it comes to talking about the Lord Jesus. Well, Paul writes to Timothy, says, okay, Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Stand up boldly for the Lord Jesus. And then we come to our text tonight here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And once again, I just want to say what a great time to be in this text because this text deals with the last days. Now, if you think back a couple of weeks ago, I scratched around in the first four verses of this chapter dealing with the subject of the last days. For instance, there in verse number one, we talked about the period of the last days. Paul begins by saying this, this know also that in the last days. You know, one of the things that we need to understand as God's people, and I think most of us do, but we are living in the period of the last days. And Paul said, Timothy, don't, uh, uh, don't be in doubt. We're living in the last days. This know also. Now, Paul said that to Timothy over 2,000 years ago. How much more can that be said to us living in these days? This know also. We are living in the last days. You and I have the privilege to be on the earth in the very last days, the last hours, the last moments before the coming of the Lord Jesus. What an honor. What an opportunity to be on the earth in these last days. And one of the things we've got to be careful about is de developing the old attitude of the prevailing attitude of people in the last days, of course, is one of great skepticism. I mean, man, the preacher can stand up and say, hey, get ready, Jesus is coming, and people roll their eyes, or else people yawn about that. And many people say, well, if he's coming, why hasn't he already come? Well, the only reason that I can give you for the fact that Jesus hadn't already come is the fact of his great patience. He is a patient God. God is waiting patiently. By the way, there's another incident in our Bible where God waited right before the judgment, a great time of judgment. Now, you and I are living uh, before a time of great judgment. We know the tribulation period is going to be a great time of judgment upon this earth. But we have an illustration back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Genesis, where God waited before sending judgment. Remember the story of Noah? That's right, God waited in the days of Noah. Noah began to prepare that ark. And God said, judgment is going to come. God gave Noah the message. Uh, and God told him that judgment was going to come. Uh, but judgment didn't come right away. God waited in the days of Noah. Look at this verse right here. The Bible says this over in the book of uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 4. Uh, I thought I maybe had another verse down. Maybe 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Do we find that one up there? Let's keep going through them. There it is. Look at this. The Bible said this, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. You know why it took Noah so long to build that ark? God was being patient with that antediluvian civilization. God was being patient with that society that was living before the flood. In fact, let me tell you this, even after Noah and his family 
Noah, Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, even after they went in the ark, God waited seven more days before the fountains of the deep opened up. That Genesis 7 verse there says this, For yet seven days I'll cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. God waited seven more days after Noah and his family got on the ark. You know what? That tells me he's a patient God. He's a long-suffering God. And one of the reasons that he hasn't already come is he's just waiting. You know what he's waiting for? People that may be listening to me preach tonight that are not saved, he's waiting for you to become a child of God. The period of the last days. But then we move from that to the peril of the last days. Look again at verse 1, and we read these words. This know also that in the last days, and then here's the word, perilous times shall come. We are told that the last days will be days of great peril. In fact, I told you last time that that word peril is only used one other time in our whole Bible. And that's back in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, and verse 28, and we read this. Speaking about those, those demoniacs, those men that were full of the devil, and we know one of them in Mark chapter 5, but Matthew says there were two of them. And according to the Bible, the Bible said that when Jesus was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding, and then there's the word, same word, peril, translated this time, pierce, uh, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. I, I think what we come to understand about the last days is this. Not only are there days of great peril, but there are also fierce days. There are days, ladies and gentlemen, when men and society will be untamed and unbridled. It'll be a day of great violence. Well, I tell you, the only conclusion that we can reach about some of the things we see going on in our world today uh, the only thing we can say about it, man, those people have to be under the influence, under the sway of the devil. Why do people live the way they live? Why do people act the way they act? Why do they talk the way they talk? Why do they do some of the things that they do? I'll tell you why. They're being influenced, if not inhabited, by the very devil himself. And Jesus said, Paul said, these last days will be days of great peril, or days that are exceeding fierce. But then we left verse 1, and we started talking about not only the period and the peril of the last days, but then in verse 2 we start talking about the particulars of the last days. And, and in this text, in these following verses here, Paul begins to deal with the, with the overall characteristics of people that are living in the last days. Now, Paul is definitely not saying that everybody's like this. Boy, aren't you glad that not everybody is like verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4? Aren't you glad? I'm glad that even as we live out these last days, there's still a remnant. There's still a group that loves God. There's still a group that loves the Bible. There's still a group that loves church and loves worship. There's still a group that loves the old-time way. There's a remnant. There's a handful. And I get it. I know we're in the minority now. We're no longer the majority. We are now in the minority. But thank God not everybody is going the route of verse 2, 3, and verse number 4. But these verses do give us the overall characteristics of the society, the culture that's living in the last day. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4, I kind of look at that like being the Thursday morning edition of the Winston-Salem Journal. I mean, our Bibles are more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. 
When you read through this, it's unbelievable. As Paul, and he's talking about people that were alive back in his day, and when we compare that to our day, we see all of this now on steroids. I mean, man, this is, this is life living in the 21st century. This is the culture, the society that we are living in. This is the prevailing attitudes of the, of the last days. And Paul reminds us as we read through these verses, there are three things wrong with this last day's crowd. First of all, their actions. Their actions are wrong. I mean, you can't help read down through here some of these words that Paul uses to describe the actions of people in the last days. He says they're blasphemers, they're foul-mouthed. Have you ever seen a time when people were more foul-mouthed than they are today? I mean, man, just out in public, just cuss up a storm. And I mean, used to, men wouldn't cuss in the presence of ladies, and now ladies cuss in the presence of men. It's unbelievable. The actions, the overall actions, the disobedience to parents, the unholy, the false accusers, the fierce, the despisers of those that are good, the truth breakers, the incontinent. Paul said their, their actions, their actions are wrong. Paul said their attitudes are wrong. When you read down through this list again, you run into words like this. They're proud. They're boasters. They're unthankful. They're high-minded. They're heady which tells me their attitudes are all wrong. You know, your attitude will determine your altitude. And their attitudes are wrong. Their actions are wrong. But then look at this. Their affections are wrong. I mean, they're, 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 they're in love with all the wrong things. Can I say it like this? They're looking for love in all the wrong places. I mean, when you read down through here, every time you run into the word, of, uh, the word love, it's always in conjunction with something they ought not be loving. For instance, there in verse 2, it talks about this, lovers of their own selves. God hadn't called us to love ourselves. God called us to love him and to love our fellow man. Amen. I remember years ago, they had that little acrostic, joy. joy. Here's how to have joy. Love Jesus. Love others. Put yourself last. Yeah, they're lovers of themselves. We read on that they're without natural affection. I mean, man, their, their love is unnatural. I mean, you can't tell me a, 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 if a man is in love with another man in a, in, a, in a sexual way, that is unnatural. Ain't no other word for it. That's unnatural. When a woman is in love with a woman in a sexual manner, that is an unnatural love. I didn't say it, God did. I just believe it. I just preach it. Amen. I mean, there's something wrong with all that. And then we read on down here, and it says this. They're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I mean, man, if that don't describe the day. I mean, people are crazy about pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Whatever makes me feel good, whatever brings me great pleasure, I love that. And they don't even love God. And then we read that they're covetous. They're lovers of money. Now, I just got to say, you got to agree with me when I say that reading through that whole verse, those whole characteristics of that last day's culture, you would think that one of the last things they'd have on their mind is religion. But then we drop down to verse number 5, which is our verse for this week, and we read this. Now, here's all this crowd, wrong actions, wrong attitudes, wrong affection, but then we drop down to verse number 5, and Paul reminds us, but let me tell you something. They may be wrong about all this stuff, but don't you think that they're not religious? Because they're very, very 
religious people. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Paul jumps right down and says, Okay, I know it's hard to believe that this anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Jesus, all these characteristics that I've just mentioned, Paul said, well, I'm about to tell you, it's going to be hard to believe, and I just want you to know, that crowd that I've just described, oh, let me tell you, they're a very religious people. Our world today is eat up with religion. That's right. I mean, our world today, no matter how, how terrible people may live, they're very religious. Oh, yeah. You can talk to somebody, maybe stand there with a Bud Dumber in one hand and, and a, a joint in his other hand, and you love Jesus. Oh, yeah. I love Jesus. I mean, man, that's the days that we're living in. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Let me, let me put that in for side count. Can I give you verse number 5? Look at it again. Can I give you, and please forgive me, but this is, this is the third Timothy translation. My name's Timothy. So let me use a third Timothy translation of this <clears throat> second Timothy verse. Let me read it. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Let me give you my definition of that. Paul said they'll be very religious people, but their religion does not change their life nor their way of living. That's what verse number 5 is, say, is saying to us. <clears throat> Paul is saying, here's this crowd. Everything about them is wrong, but most of them's got their name on a church roll somewhere. Amen, preacher. Most of them, if you were to ask them, they are a member over here at this church. They are a member over here at the Episcopal Church or the Whiskable Church. They are a member over here at the Lutheran Church. They're a member over here at the Methodist Church, and boy, I hate to even say this, but they're even a member over here at the Baptist Church. Very ungodly, unholy, unthankful. I mean, love everything but God, but very, very religious. You do know that one of the easiest things in the world to do is join the church. I mean, you stop and think about it. If you go join some of these, these, uh, these clubs, these organizations, <clears throat> like the Moose Lodge or whatever, and the Goose Lodge or, and, or the whatever, Masonic Lodge, or whatever. I mean, you've got you to gotta sign your name that you're going to live by a list of credentials, that you're going to give this much of money, or you're going to do this, or you're going to do that. You think about how you join a Baptist church. Walks down an aisle, somebody says, you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. Well, a lot of churches don't even ask you that. You, you religious? Oh, yeah, I'm religious. You've been through confirmation? Oh, yeah, I've been through confirmation. Uh, you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. All right. How many of y'all want to vote them into our fellowship and a first and a second and a raise of hands and they're in like Flynn? It is easy to join a church, especially a Baptist church. But buddy, I'll tell you what, our church roles are filled with people who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They have a form of godliness, but I want to tell you something, their religion has never changed their life nor their lifestyle. And Paul said, I'll tell you, what to do with that crowd? Just turn away from them. Just don't have anything to do with them. Amen. Now, what I want to do is tonight, if you'll bear with me, it's 7.52, but if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I want you to look there at verse number 5. And let me, if I may, break this verse apart. And at the close of the message tonight, I'm going to give you an equation to write down in your Bible. Not yet, but at the 
close of the message. First of all, look at verse 5. And let me just say this. This culture of the last days, they have a form. They have a form. That's what he says there in verse 5, having a form of godliness. Now, I looked up the word form in my Strong's Concordance. It actually comes from the word morphous. I don't know what all that does, but I did like one of the definitions that was down under that, and it said this, an appearance. So let me read it like this, verse 5, having an appearance of godliness. Here's a group of people that, that fall into verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4, but don't, don't, don't sweat it. They're very religious. They have an appearance of being godly. They have a form of of religion. Now, this may surprise you what I'm getting ready to tell you, but you know a lot of people think when they think about the Bible, they think of it in terms of being a religious book. But you know something? The Bible really has very little to say on the subject of religion. I looked it up this week. Did you know the word religion or the word religious is used only seven times in the entire Bible? Now, that's 66 books. 1,189 chapters, 71,160-some verses, 788,000-plus words in our King James Bible, and only seven times you'll read the word religion or religious. And then I looked this up. Six of those times it's used in the negative sense. Six of them. Only one time in our Bible is the word religion used in the, with a positive connotation and right here it is. James 1, verse 27, and the Bible said this, pure religion. By the way, that's the kind of religion I'm interested in. I'm interested in that pure religion and that undefiled religion. Before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the, the fatherless and the, and the widows of their affliction, to keep himself unspotted. Can I tell you something? The right kind of religion will keep you out of verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4. You don't have to say it, I will. Amen, preacher. And can I just say this to our church membership? Now, if i got to keep doing my own amen, and I'm going to have to have a raise as a pastor, if i got to preach an amen myself. So y'all going to have to help me out there at home. All right? How many of y'all agree with what I'm saying right now? Say amen. I do. I think, hey, uh, if you got the right kind of religion, it'll keep you out of verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4. That's right. They have a form of religion. That's right. Someone once noted the difference between religion and true salvation. Religion is man's attempt to reach up to God. Salvation is God attempting to reach down to men. Religion is all about the outside. Salvation is first inwardly and then outwardly. Religion is fact head. Salvation is faith in your heart. Religion is rejected by God. Salvation is accepted by God. The people that Paul is describing here in this verse, as far, in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, they're as far from God as far can be. But Paul said, I just want to remind you, regardless of all that, they're very religious people. They still go to church. They still, uh, they still say their prayers. They still attend communion. They still light their candles. They still burn their incense. They still go through their confirmation. They still give their money. But Paul said it's all just an appearance. It's not anything that's going to change their life. They have a form. But then can I say secondly, 
they have no force. Look again in our text. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the force, the power thereof. In other words, let me say it like this. A religion that produces no change is, is a no good religion. They're religious, but their actions are still wrong. They're religious, but they still blaspheme out of their mouth. I mean, they're religious, but they still curse like a sailor. They're, they're religious, but they're unholy. They're out of, they, 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 don't, uh, they, they are against that which is holy. They're religious, but they're incontinent. They're out of control. Their actions are still wrong. They're religious, but their attitudes are still wrong. They're still proud, and they're boasters, and they're strong-willed, and they won't listen to wise and godly counsel. Their actions are wrong. Their attitudes are wrong, and their affection is still wrong. They're without natural affection. I mean, they may be religious, but they still love pleasure more than they love God. They may be religious, but they still are lovers of themselves. They may be religious, but they still are covetous. They have a religion, but their religion has made no change whatsoever in their lives. Paul said that's the kind of religion the world's interested in today. The last day's culture wants the kind of religion that they can smoke their weed, drink their liquor, live in their immorality, and still be religious. Amen. Men, preacher, that's the days that we're living in. A lot of people say this, I'm religious, but I don't want my religion tying me down. I, I, I'm religious, but don't expect any dedication out of me. Can I tell you something in reality? I wouldn't give you a half a hallelujah for religion that don't change your life. Amen doesn't change the way you live. Can I tell you what the Bible still says? The Bible still says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. I tell you what, old-fashioned Holy Ghost, wrought salvation will cause you to hate what you used to love, and will cause you to love what you used to hate. Amen. They have a form. They have a form. But they have no force. And so number three, look at this. They have a form, they have no force, and they are a farce. Am I right? Let me give you the synonyms for the word farce. It means joke, sham, or mockery. That's right. That describes the culture of the last days. They have a form. They have no force. And in reality... They're a farce. They're not real. Let, let, let me give you this equation. I'm laughing at my own preaching. Let me give you this equation. Look up on the screen right here. Look at this. Form minus force equals farce. Am I right? I'm telling you something. You can be religion, but your religion is not going to get you into heaven. I mean, if you're still, if you still got the characteristics of verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4, friends, you better check up. Something's wrong with you. Either something's wrong with the Bible or something's wrong with you, and I don't think anything's wrong with the Bible. You better check up because form minus force. Form without power. Form without life change. Form, and you're still living the same old way, is farce. It's not real. But now let me close with this. 
Look at this equation. Form plus force equals faith. I mean, buddy, when you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and He begins to make the changes that are necessary in your life to get you out of verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4 and get you down into verse number 10, 11, and 12. That's what the Holy Spirit will do for you. He will change your life. Now, I know, I know that change has, you know, got to take time in some instances, and, you know, you know it's, a, it's a work of grace and, and the sanctification. You, got, you, you grow, and I get all that, but I'm just trying to say, man, there ought to be some changes if you know Jesus. You know, one of the things the Bible cautions us about is there are going to be a lot of people, when everything's said and done, when it's all over with, there's going to be a lot of people who had the appearance of religion they had formed. But there was no force. And they're going to be found to be a farce. You remember those verses over in Matthew chapter 7? When that crowd said, Jesus, we've been religious, we've cast out devils, and we've prophesied, and we've done many wonderful works in your name. Oh, Jesus, we had to form. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, You depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. You know what? In reality, they were a farce. They weren't real. It was a sham. It was a joke. It was a mockery. And you know what scares me about some of that is? That probably some of those very people have got their name on the roll of Woodland Baptist Church. It scares me especially as we are living out these last days, last hours. Friend, I tell you what, bless your heart, if you're still living in verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4, if I was you, I'd take every bit of the religion I'd got and I'd junk it and I'd come to Jesus tonight and I'd be saved. That's exactly right. Because let me tell you something, if all you've got is a form without any force, you're a farce, and let me read you what the Bible said about people like that. James chapter 1, verse 26. This man's religion is vain. It's empty. It, can I say it like we say it out in the country? It won't do you a hill of beans worth of good when you stand before God. Friend, everybody needs Jesus. And if there's been no change in your life, if there's no chastisement in your life. But can I say this? If you are living in verse 2, verse 3, and verse number 4, and you are saved, there ought to be some chastising going on somewhere. Can I have an amen? There ought to be some whipping. I mean, there ought to be some correcting of attitudes and actions and affections. I mean, God ought to be working in our life somehow or another because uh, all of that's wrong. That's wrong living there. Uh, there ought to be some chastisement, but if there's been no change and there's been no chastisement, I tell you what, that's a good indication that you're headed for hell and not headed for heaven. So I said all that to say this, I love you with all my heart, but if all you've got is a form and it doesn't have any force, then friend, as sure as the world, you're a farce and you need Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer.